Thank you for listening to this podcast from TRE. Talk Radio Europe, your voice in Spain and around the world. For more information, please visit tre.radio. The TRE Book Show is sponsored by audible.co.uk. Download one title each month, plus unlimited listening to thousands of Audible originals, podcasts and audiobooks. Just click on the Audible banner at www.tre.radio. The Book Programme, presented by Hannah Murray. Good evening, welcome to tonight's book show. We'll start the show by looking at the bestseller lists on Amazon.co.uk and the Sunday Times, the oldest and most influential book sales chart in the UK. We'll be seeing what new entries there are. Then we'll be chatting to Matt Kane. He's an author, leading commentator on LGBT plus issues and a former journalist. He was Channel 4's first culture editor, editor-in-chief of Attitude magazine and has judged the Costa Prize, the Polari Prize and the South Bank Sky Arts Award. His latest novel, One Love, is about 20 years of love and friendship culminating at Manchester Pride. Also chatting to Anne Parson, a science journalist who specialises in the environment, medicine and technology. Her first work of fiction, The Birds of Dog, is a historical novel based mostly on true events. It's the story of Charles Pickering, a zoologist who actually existed, and his cousin Catherine, a curator and lover of birds. The book contains appearances by many real people, including Charles Dickens. We also chat to Araminta Hall, a journalist and teacher. She's the author of five previous novels, her first being Everything and Nothing, which was published in 2011 and became a Richard and Judy read that year. Her latest novel is One of the Good Guys. Just the first hour. In the second, we chat to Mary Hanna, Hester Musson, Jane Forley, and Carver Barris. All on tonight's book show on Talk Radio Europe. The Book Programme. Presented by Hannah Murray. Welcome to tonight's book show. As always, we start by having a look at the Sunday Times bestseller list, the oldest and most influential book sales chart in the UK and the one that every author wants to be on. The chart is the most accurate and comprehensive estimation of book sales in the country. 
So this week's bestsellers, there is serious dough to be made in writing about slow cookers and air fryers. Nathan Anthony's cookbook was by far the best-selling book of last week. His trio of board of lunch titles have sold 877,000 copies in the UK, taking more than £8 million at the tills. Looking at general hardbacks for this week, there's just one new entry. At number one is Politics on the Edge by Rory Stewart. Number two, Friends, Lovers and the Big Terrible Thing by Matthew Perry. The new entry is at three. It's called Little Things by Fern Cotton. Advice on understanding one's worries and learning how to respond to them. Number four, The Woman in Me by Britney Spears. Number five is Unruly by David Mitchell. Number six, This Book May Save Your Life by Karen Rajan. Number seven, It's Back in the Charts, Ultra Processed People by Chris Van Tullikin. Number eight, Also Back in the Charts, Why Has Nobody Told Me This Before by Julie Smith. Number nine, The Diary of a CEO by Stephen Bartlett. And number ten, Wild Hope by Donna Ashworth. Moving on to fiction hardbacks, two new entries from last week. At number one is Iron Flame by Rebecca Yaris. Number two, The Last Devil to Die by Richard Osman. Number three is Fourth Wing by Rebecca Yaros. Number four is a new entry called Ruthless Vows by Rebecca Ross. Iris returns home from the front, unsure of Roman's fate. It's a sequel to Divine Rivals. Number five this week is The Secret by Lee Child and Andrew Child. Number six, the other new entry, Upside Down by Danielle Steele. A Hollywood icon and her estranged daughter navigate unconventional romances. Number seven is The Running Grave by Robert Galbraith. Number eight, Good Material by Dolly Alderton. Number nine is Prophet Song by Paul Lynch. And number ten, The Year of the Locust by Terry Hayes. Moving on to Amazon.co.uk, the top 10 at the moment at number one is Charles III, New King, New Court, The Inside Story by Robert Hardman. Number two, Board of Lunch, Healthy Slow Cooker, Even Easier by Nathan Anthony. Number three, Deliciously Ella, Healthy Made Simple, Delicious Plant-Based Recipes Ready in 30 Minutes or Less. That's by Ella Mills. Number four is Atomic Habits by James Clear. Number five, Board of Lunch, The Healthy Air Fryer Book by Nathan Anthony. Number six, Pinch of Nom Express, Fast Delicious Food by Kay Allenson. Number seven, The Batch Lady Grab and Cook, No Fuss Prepare, not, sorry, No Fuss Prep Ahead Meals to Make Life Easy. That's by Suzanne Mulholland. Number eight is The Complete Air Fryer Cookbook, 140 Super Easy Everyday Recipes and Techniques by Sam Milner. Number nine is Myrtle, Solve 100 Devilishly Devious Murder Mystery Logic Puzzles by G.T. Carber. And number 10 is Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. Is that the only fiction in the top 10? I think so. It is, isn't it? Yeah, it's the only fiction. There's, and then there's one non-fiction, no, two non-fiction, and all the rest are cookbooks, healthy cookbooks. Amazing. You can tell it's January. The Book Programme, presented by Hannah Murray. You're listening to The Book Club on Talk Radio Europe. 
and keep listening. That's an instruction from Margaret Thatcher. Joining us on the line now is Matt Kane. He's an author, leading commentator on LGBT plus issues and a former journalist. For the past two years, he's been a presenter for Virgin Radio Pride, was Channel 4's first culture editor, editor-in-chief of Attitude magazine, and he's judged the Costa Prize, the Polari Prize and the South Bank Sky Arts Awards. He's with us on the book show to talk about his latest novel, One Love, described as a joyful novel about 20 years of love and friendship culminating at Manchester Pride. Welcome to the book show, Matt. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, it's great to have you with us. I don't know how you find the time to do everything. What with the all the different writing gigs, the radio, the judging panels. You, how, when do you sleep? <laughs> <laughs> Not enough. I mean, the funny thing is, it's interesting when you read out that biography. But um, basically, a lot of the journalism and the broadcasting, most of it I did before I really hit my stride as a writer. And I still keep my hand in now. I still write for newspapers and I do my radio show for Virgin Radio Pride, as you mentioned, every summer. But um, primarily, I focus on the novels now. And also, I do sometimes think, I'm sure anybody listening, if they've tried writing, um, when you do a first draft, it's quite good to put it to one side for a couple of months and then you can come back and read it with fresh eyes. So I'm quite good at organising my time so I can make all the different projects work together. Mm. And do you think your your journalism was a good kind of grounding for the novel writing? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yes, because um, when you... So I used to make documentaries. I used to be a broadcast journalist, a print journalist. In that world... Um, editor figures are very brutal. You're told to chop a minute off here, move that from the beginning to the end. That doesn't work. And you just have to do it. Um, A lot of writers struggle with editors' input. And I know it can massively improve something. And I also know that in publishing, people are very respectful and sensitive. And because I started in an industry that's much more brutalising, I'm quite open to outside inputs and I'm much more ready for it and able to handle it than some people. Yeah, because writing novels particularly can be quite a solitary experience. But when you think of the the editors and the publishers, and it, it can be a bit of a team effort, isn't it? Oh, it's definitely a team effort. I can say to you that all of my novels have been massively improved by the input of my agent, editor, and everybody on the team at my publisher. Um, Yes, I mean, the funny thing is, though, when you are in the hard slog of a first draft, um, you slightly go into your own world, and it um, it is about introversion, and you're not necessarily aware of being on a team, you just kind of immerse yourself in your fictional role. And then what happens is the book comes out and you get to talk to nice people like you all over the world, which is great. But when you're writing, I mean, I was writing the new book, One Love. I was writing it for four and a half years in between other projects because it's one that I really care about and one that I just wanted to get as good as I could get it. So I didn't want to rush it. Yeah. And 
Yeah, for a lot of that time, I did feel slightly like I was on my own. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about one love then, that the two main characters are Danny and Guy. Did Would you say that the kind of general arc of the story came to you first or was it very much the characters? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I would say, so I always loved the book One Day by David Nichols. Um, I was always interested in that theme of blurred boundaries between friendship and romantic or sexual relationships. And it always struck me that with two men, two gay men, these blurred boundaries can be a bit more intense because we're the obvious sex for a friend or a lover, which isn't necessarily the case with straight relationships. So I thought if I could do a take on this theme from a gay perspective, it'll have something to say for lots of readers from all different backgrounds, and it will hopefully resonate widely. That was kind of my starting point. It's actually, I mean, it's not, um, it's quite different to one day. It's about two men who meet at Manchester University in 2002. They become best friends. They explore their sexuality in the gay village. It's a big awakening for them. But what one of them doesn't know is the other one is secretly in love with him. And 20 years later, to celebrate the anniversary of their friendship, they go back to Manchester for the Pride weekend and everything comes to a head. So it is quite different to one day, but thematically... I was inspired by it, and that was my starting point. Mm. So tell us about Danny and Guy as people. Oh, well, I also wanted to explore social class in this book and the impact of it. Um, I'm from a working-class background in the north of England, and Danny is from a similar background to me. Guy is upper-middle-class, and I wanted to explore the different opportunities they have throughout life. That is one of the key themes because my parents were both from council estates and I went to a comprehensive and then Cambridge University. So I thought for ages, oh, social class doesn't apply anymore. It's it's just not a big thing. But what I actually realised as I went through life was that I was being subjected to class snobbery a lot. People were always doing impressions of my accent. You get comments like, oh, you're actually really clever. You know, if you're a northerner, um, often people like you, you have these positive discriminations. They think you're warm and down to earth, but they underestimate your intelligence. And sometimes with publishing, you know, broadsheets don't tend to review my books. I don't get invited to the big literary festivals. Um, There is a cultural snobbery there, and I much prefer... Um, connecting directly with readers, which I do all the time on social media. But all this has been going on in my head for quite a while. So that's why I wanted to explore it through these two characters, Danny and Guy. That's really interesting. I'm sorry you've had that experience. It, in this day and age, it's, uh, well, I mean, nothing ceases to amaze me, to be honest. But I mean, it does seem shocking, doesn't it? Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting, Hannah, because I had such a journey to get published in the first place. You know, um, I my first novel, The Madonna of Bolton, everybody rejected it. They said it was too gay. Mainstream audiences won't be interested. To have a hit book, you have to appeal to straight women. And um, I was thinking, I know loads of straight women and they love their gay friends or their gay brothers. How dare you say they won't be able to empathise with a gay character? And I had to really, really fight to get that book published that first 
first one. I had to take it out and crowdfund it. And I crowdfunded it in the record time for a novel. And it, I sent all my rejection letters to The Guardian and it became a big kind of source of public outrage. And that set me on my way. But I'm used to having to battle, basically, to have my voice heard. And actually, interestingly, on the same subject, um, when you are a camp obviously gay man people often you get positive discrimination oh i love gays we can all go out and you know go on a shopping day and drink cocktails but what they often do is they think you know i often have my books underestimated they think they're a bit of light relief and a bit of fun um because that's what gays do and people will say oh your books there's a lot of depth there you know is in a kind of surprised voice (laughs) so uh I'm used to battling, Hannah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's fascinating. I mean, it comes up a lot, obviously, with, with authors that I interview and they talk about wanting to write characters that people can relate to, you know, from, from all different backgrounds, ethnicities, sexuality, everything. Um, and I think it's, in one respect, that's great, you know, whether you're a young person, an adult, you know, to read about people that are like yourself, that look like you, that, that, that have the same desires as you, all that kind of thing is great. But I think also as humans, we're really intrigued and interested to read about and learn about people who aren't like us. So I totally agree with you in that just, um, I don't think straight women uh, are going to not be interested in stories about gay men just because they can't necessarily personally relate to it. They're still going to be interested. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. One of the things I love most about reading is being able to get inside the head of somebody from a different country, a different culture, a different Mm. background, gender. I find that fascinating. And also the interesting thing is um, the majority of my readers are straight women. And what Mm. they often say, they talk to, when I've talked to them about why they connect with my books, the thing that comes up is that if you've got queer characters, often they have a freedom to lead a bit more alternative lifestyles and dodge what's expected. And their stories sometimes involve kind of rejecting the boxes society tries to force us into and creating a way of life that respects their individuality and their uniqueness. And I actually think that everybody's unique. Loads of women I know have been told, oh, women shouldn't behave like that. You know, um, you don't do that as a mother, you don't do that as a wife. And A lot of straight women who read my books say they feel inspired to live a bit more freely and be a bit more true to themselves. And so, yeah, so I agree with exactly what you're saying, that it's great to get inside the head of somebody very different to you, but it's also great to spot unexpected connections, Mm. you know, and, 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 yeah, to see parallels that you may not have expected. Yeah. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. I, I, I get that totally. So can we talk a little bit about the journey that, that Danny and Guy go on without giving too much away? Absolutely. Well, um, and Danny, rather, is quite like me in the sense that he experienced homophobic bullying at school and he thought he was a freak and dirty, disgusting, there was something wrong with him. He kind of internalised that and had really has really low self-esteem at the beginning of the book. And this drives him to self-destruction, booze, partying, sleeping around. And what he comes to realise... Um, as I did in life, actually, is that um, 
he he start, he kind of looks outside himself for something to make him better, for something to make him good enough. All my characters do this. So in the Madonna of Bolton, the character looks at Madonna as a spirit guide. She can make me better. In Becoming Ted, he um, wants to become a drag queen, and he looks at drag as something that can transform him. But in this book, Danny thinks, oh, if Guy, who's gorgeous, and he's not camp at all, people would think he's straight and he's sporty and he's everything I'm not and he's posh classy if he could just love me everything will be all right and what actually happens is he comes to realize that that capacity for happiness self-love was in himself all along oh great message fantastic and well, well, I like um, I, I do like uh, I like exploring self-discovery self-realization and um, somebody becoming themselves and um yeah, I think that does come from my own experience, definitely. Mm. And they have very different backgrounds, as you say. What about their ages? Are they a similar age or is that different? Well, it starts when they are um, just in Freshers' Week at university. So they're both 18, although there's six months difference between them, actually. Okay. And it ends 20 years later at Manchester Pride. So they are 38. But there are, so there's lots of, other characters around them who are a lot older, for example, and their parents are very important characters. And interestingly, Guy, who everybody thinks has the perfect life, his parents are homophobic and very unaccepting. Danny, who's from a much less privileged background, single mom, very working class, she's a hairdresser, she is very accepting. So I wanted to put a little twist there about um, what people think is is perfect and um, what's the ideal and what isn't. And I also have an older gay character who's in his 70s, I think, and he, although obviously at the end of the book he's in his 70s, um, and what I like to have older gay characters because I really like to draw attention to the fact that it did used to be horrendous for us um, in the old days, the persecution, the prejudice, mm. the oppression. But I also want to draw attention to how much better things are now. And I want, you know, if I do feel that I am writing for straight women, I want a lot of them, um, not just for straight women, but I want people to feel proud of the role that they've played as allies in making our world a much more accepting place for people like me. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. And with regards to the, the years 2002 and 2022, did you have to kind of do a bit of research into things that were, were happening at the time? Are there kind of pop culture references or historical references in the book? Yeah, there is a lot of that with scene setting. But I mean, I I often write about periods which have been important to me because you have much clearer memories. Um, and the interesting thing with this is because the characters go to university about eight years after me, I have quite clear, eight years after I did, I've got quite clear memories of that period. And yeah, it was a great one to... Um, explore i i loved writing it i mean i loved writing i love writing all my books i'm very lucky because i have lots of ideas and i only pick ideas for that i'm gonna enjoy writing you know so um yeah i love it and i must say actually i'm thrilled to be doing this interview because my auntie and uncle lived for decades in nerha on the costa del sol oh yes and, um, 
I've spent a lot of time there. Their grandchildren, two of their grandchildren have got married in Nerja, so we've been back. Uh, And actually in my last book, Becoming Ted, I set a key scene in Nerja. It's about um, a 40-something gay man whose husband leaves him. He's devastated. He thinks he'll never recover. Then he actually starts to think, well, you know what? Maybe my husband wasn't perfect. Maybe he held me back. Maybe it's time to put myself first and pursue my long-suppressed dream of becoming a drag queen. So, um the key scene, which is set in Nerja, he first sees a drag queen as a boy when he's on holiday there and they go to a drag bar and that sets the whole thing in motion. So it was kind of um, my nice little tribute because I've got so many happy memories from that part of the world. Oh, lovely. That's so nice to hear. What a great connection. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. Funnily enough, my um, husband and I went there for for the night um, only a few months ago. We hadn't been for a few years. It's about, about an hour or so from where we live. So great place. Yeah, I absolutely love it. And um, loads and loads of happy memories from that part of the world. And that is what's brilliant about my job. If I've had happy memories from a place, I can revisit it Mm. when I'm writing. And I love that. And the same with the period, as you mentioned. You know, I, I love going back to happy times, happy places. It's a joy. Lovely. Well, it's a joy to read. Your your readers will get that joy from the pages of your books. If uh, oh, people want you. to get a copy of One Love, it's available now. It's on our website, tre.radio, and it's by Matt Kane, who we've been chatting with. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Joining us on the line now is Araminta Hall. She's a journalist and teacher. She's the author of five previous novels, including her first, Everything and Nothing, which was published in 2011 and became a Richard and Judy read that year. She's the great niece of Dodie Smith and the great granddaughter of Lawrence Beasley, who survived the Titanic and wrote a best-selling account of the tragedy. She's with us on the book show to talk about her latest novel, One of the Good Guys. Welcome to the book show, Araminta. Hello, thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. And uh, how amazing to have uh, such a literary family to have been born into. Is that how you feel? Well, not really. I didn't even know she was my great aunt until I was about 40. So wow. <laughs> it wasn't something that was part of our family at all. So um, I am, um, no, I mean, I never met her either. So. I was, um, no, I don't feel part of a literary dynasty at all. (laughs) Oh, how funny. So you don't feel like it's in your blood then? Did it, did it come to you Uh, later in life? So she was by marriage. I mean, my grandfather, my great grandfather, Lawrence Beasley, who his son married her. So obviously, yes, no, I don't, I don't think I can claim any sort of (laughs) bloodline to, to bring it to be, to literacy. (laughs) Oh, funny. So uh, how did you get into writing then? Um, I just really, uh, it was just always what I wanted to do. Um, And I, you know, but after I graduated from university, I obviously had to pay the rent. So I um, got a job in a PR company and then I got a job as a journalist. And I was just always beavering away, writing novels, trying things out. And then, um, and then actually I went back and I did an MA in creative writing um, in, oh goodness, I think it was about 20, 20, 2009, 2010, that sort of time. And um, 
I um uh, yeah I got an I got an agent and a publisher from there which was which was really incredible but it had been a really long time of sort of you know um sending things off I mean I remember the times when you used to send things off in um in envelopes and you had to enclose <laughs> uh your own big stamped addressed envelope and then they would sort of thud onto the mat you know sort of six weeks later with a rejection so um it was yeah it was a lot a lot of all that a lot, a lot of just yeah just keeping on going basically yeah and did you always know the the kind of books that you wanted to write the, the genre that you wanted to write um, in well no, not not at all. I mean, actually, I think I think it might, I, I mean, I've spoken to so many authors about that, and I think for most authors, when you write your first book, you you don't really you don't think in genre, which I think is actually true of a lot of readers. Like I never thought in genre as a reader before, and looking back now, I can see that a lot of the books I loved were thrillers but I um, also like you know loads of other types of books as well. Um, so I, I'm not sure. Yes, I don't know if I, I don't know how much uh, readers, certainly the read, all the people I know don't think in genre so much. And so, I mean, it didn't surprise me because, you know, I'd sort of grown up reading Patricia Highsmith and people like that who I had absolutely loved. So it didn't surprise me that that I was a thriller writer, but I hadn't actually thought about it before <laughs> my first editor said it to me. <laughs> yeah, funny. So when you write your your books, do you spend quite a bit of time on the characters beforehand? Do you do you plot each chapter? Do you know where you're going before you start? Um, I'm sort of a real in-betweener of the between the two states. I I mean, for me, everything is based in character. So I normally come up with, I sort of normally get an idea of what I want to write about, which is normally, I suppose, more like a theme. And then I think about the characters that might inhabit that. And then I'll think about a story to go with it. But um yeah, for me, the most important thing is to have really believable characters because I sort of, I think I know that like when you ask anybody what, 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 you know, what's that book like, you know, people will just describe what happened and the plot. So the plot is super important. But at the same time, I think the only reason that they've cared about the plot is because they've actually cared about what's happening to the characters that are um, inhabiting it. So I, um, I sort of start with everything really. And I, I don't do those massive plots. What I, what I've learned about myself basically is that I, my first draft is almost like a massive, um, plotting exercise and, and getting to make, it's a sort of a massive exercise in getting to know everything. And I've literally never shown my first draft to anyone, including my agent. I just, <laughs> I sort of know it's just for me. So I know what I'm doing. But yeah. yeah, the one point I always know is the beginning and the end. And that doesn't change. My, I mean, the beginning, it could change a bit, but the ending normally stays pretty much the same because I sort of feel, I, I don't know, I feel a bit scared if I don't know where I'm going. I think that's the most, I sort of think you have to know where you're going. Otherwise, everything becomes a bit weird. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I don't, I don't have those sort of like post-it notes plotting, knowing every chapter. Right. So tell us about the the main characters in this book then. Well, the there are the, the, the book is actually sort of it's told from three points of view. And the first um point of view we meet is um Cole who is um what well, you know, he is the good guy of the character of the title and he has moved to um 
a remote stretch of coastland on the south, southern and southern England because um, he's just recently got divorced and he can't understand why. And he's, you know, nursing this broken heart and he. He's, yeah, he's just sort of in a bit of turmoil. And once he gets there, he meets um, this reclusive artist called Leonora, who's living right on the edge of um, the cliffs in this tumble-down cottage um, with these sort of eroding cliffs. And the landscape is incredibly bleak and um, and isolating. And they start, they sort of form a friendship. And um, meanwhile, there are these two young women are doing a charity walk um, against male violence. And they are, they're doing sort of a coast to coast charity walk. So they are sort of getting closer and closer to where Cole and Leonora live. And um, when they reach them, they disappear without a trace. And so there's sort of the three main, the three characters that we hear from are Cole, his ex-wife Mel and Leonora, the artist. But there's also sort of a fourth character in a way, which is, um, I include a lot of social media. So we hear a lot of um, views and opinions from the, um, from the public as well. Oh, interesting. That's, that's fun. Was that, was that fun to do? Come up with all the different points of view? Cause everyone has them, don't they? With these things. Happen. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it was, it felt quite important to me because it felt like women are judged so harshly in those spaces. You know, we're so, um, you know, everything we do is judged from, you know, from, boring things like what we look like to things things like what we think and um and i've i've just noticed that in you know missing a women you know missing uh, when young women go missing there's a certain type of young woman who is taken up by social media and there is also a really sort of dark nasty narrative where they almost start being blamed for their own disappearance and so yeah it felt really important to me to include that and it was it was it was it was it was quite fun to write because I sort of really had to immerse myself in the different types of so some of some things which I hadn't really didn't know much about at all so yeah it was finding lots of different voices which was quite interesting yeah so how long did it take you to do the book from the first draft until publication um, it's normally about 18 months to two years per book for me, um, sort of the whole until it's finished, as in my editor says, yes, it's finished. <laughs> it's, so it's, yeah, I mean, I can normally do the first draft relatively quickly because I'm not really sort of worrying about anything in that apart from, and then I sort of scrap that and start again. And um, then that, like my second or third draft will be the one I show my agent and then I'll go through loads of edits with her and then obviously it goes to editors and you go through loads of edits with them. So, yeah, the whole process, I think, is about two years normally. Mm. And how do you feel when the book is finished, when it's out there? Is it a mixture of relief and, and sadness? Um, no, it's relief, um, um, but also it's not really sadness. It's more fear, I would say, <laughs> just thinking how it's going to be received. Is it going to sell anything? Uh, you know, all those sorts of 
feelings. It's just, and it's really, you know, now um, we have this amazing um, community online of bloggers and um, book TikTokers and people like that. So reviews are, I mean, if you get, you know, reviews in newspapers, it's quite rare for a newspaper to review a book that they really actively hate. (laughs) So if you've got a review in a newspaper, it normally means that the person has probably liked it or um, unless, you know, I mean, sometimes it happens that so it feels a little bit safe around that. But um, obviously online, people are just completely free to say anything. So which is great in lots of ways. But it also means that you are very exposed when a book comes out. <laughs> Yeah, I suppose why I was thinking sad is if you've really spent a lot of time with those those characters and then suddenly uh, they're they're gone. That that's where the sadness might sometimes yeah. co- crop in. No, I suppose yes. Actually, I don't feel that sad. No, oh, I mean, yes, that's that's my good. characters are the particular. Although the character, I mean the uh, the women in this book are nice actually, but a lot of the time I'm with um I'm with not particularly nice characters, so I don't feel <laughs> I don't feel a huge sense of loss. No. Yeah. Well, if people people want to get a copy of one of the good guys it's available now on the bookshop in uh, in our website tre.radio it's by araminta hall who we've been chatting with today araminta thanks so much for joining us thank you so much the book program presented by hannah murray talk radio europe your voice in spain The Book Programme, presented by Hannah Murray. Good evening. Welcome to the second hour in tonight's book show. In the first hour, we heard from Matt Kane, Anne Parson and Araminta Hall. In this hour, we're chatting to Mari Hanna, the multi-award winning author of the Stone and Oliver Crime series, the Ryan O'Neill series and the DCI Kate Daniels series. A former probation officer, Mari turned to screenwriting when her career was cut short following an assault on duty. Her latest Kate Daniels novel, The Longest Goodbye, looks at what happens when someone takes the law into their own hands. Then we chat to Hester Musson, who studied English literature at Bristol University and has a master's in drama. Her debut novel, The Beholders, is set in the 19th century when the body of a boy is pulled from the depths of the River Thames, suspected to be the beloved missing child of a widely admired Liberal MP. We also have Jane Forley on the show. She's a psychotherapist turned crime writer who's fascinated by what makes people tick. Her debut psychological thriller, Where the Bruised Pieces Go, looks into the heart of why we do what we do. Finally, Carver Barris joins us. He suffered with PTSD and depression after several years of active service in the armed forces and on advice from a counsellor took to putting words onto paper. His debut novel, The Myrtle Tree, is an action thriller set against a backdrop of fact based on the biblical story of Esther. It's a 21st century espionage set in the Turkish mountains. And that's tonight's book show on Talk Radio Europe. The Book Programme. Presented by Hannah Murray. 
Joining us on the line now is Mari Hanna. She's the multi-award winning author of the Stone and Oliver Crime series, the Ryan O'Neill series and the DCI Kate Daniels series. A former probation officer, Mari turned to screenwriting when her career was cut short following an assault on duty. She won the Polari First Book Prize for her debut The Murder Wall in 2013 and was made programming chair of the Thiexton Old Peculiar Crime Festival. In 2020, she won Capital Crime's Crime Book of the Year Award for Without a Trace. She's with us on The Book Show to talk about her latest thriller, The Longest Goodbye. It looks at what happens when someone takes the law into their own hands. Welcome to The Book Show, Murray. Hi, thanks for uh, inviting me. It's lovely to chat with you. Oh, and it's lovely to have you with us on the show. Thanks for being with us. So tell us, first of all, how your writing journey started. It was it was all to do with this, this incident that happened at work. It was, yes. I was off work for quite a while and um, eventually the probation service let me go. I think I was two years off and, and had surgery for a, a, a pretty nasty uh, wrist injury. So they let me go on a pension. I was far too young to retire and I wondered what on earth am I going to do next? And um, I loved reading crime fiction. Obviously, I knew the world uh, and my partner was a murder detective. So uh, why not? I thought I'll have a go. Um, Never thought I would get this far. Tomorrow I'm launching book 15. I actually can't believe that. Oh, amazing. Amazing. So you found your calling, you think? I have, I have. I mean, just just when I, I enjoyed writing so much, I mean, it was very, very difficult at first. I had no idea what I was doing. Although I was a reader, it was very difficult to structure the book and get it right. The years have gone on and as I progressed and I've learned from my editors and what have you, it's, it's become easier. It's never easy to put a crime novel together and I love putting the puzzle together, but I, I just caught the bug mm. and, uh, and that was it. I was off. So tell us, can you tell us a bit about your time as a probation officer and and what that entailed? Well, yeah, I mean, I I was in various departments. I worked um, in a field team at first. When I I first uh, left university, I I was um, home office sponsored. Um, So that was lovely because I was paid while I was was learning. Um, And after that, I went to work in a prison uh, for three years, which I which I really enjoyed, actually. Um, and then I, when I came out of there, I went to a community service team uh, supervising offenders who were on um, licence to do good work for the community uh, as punishment. And it was while I was there that, that the assault happened because, really, basically, uh, somebody who wasn't playing ball, who I was... It was my duty to take back to court lost his temper, and the rest is history, really. I did go and work at the Crown Court as a liaison officer for a while after that, but my wrist was so badly damaged I couldn't write. Um, and I couldn't pick up a pen for a long, long time. But as, as kind of physiotherapy, really, I started to tap away on a computer and I could manage that. It was just the physical picking up a pen and writing with it. Mm-hmm. I got terrible pains in my wrist. I worked all over. I worked with with offenders, mostly serious offenders. Um, the prison I worked in was people serving, uh, young offenders serving from six years to life. So, yeah, I was working with lifers in and outside of prison. 
Wow. And that must have been a, well, so many different words, I guess, could could describe that experience. But what was it like coming face to face with people who'd, who'd done such awful things? Well, obviously, when you first start off as a, as a new probation officer, they, they give you the less serious cases. But, um, but yeah, it's all part and parcel of the job. And, and, and in my training, I'd, I'd learned a lot about the law, about sociology, about psychology. So I was well equipped to deal with it. But, but the reality of coming face to face with your first lifer, for example, is, um, you know, you, you just don't know what to expect. But, you know, Lifers are not people, you know, they, they don't have horns. They aren't any different from the rest of us. They look absolutely the same. They've done something dreadful. Um, and, you know, uh, so I think the the thought of working with lifers was more scary than the actual reality. Mm. And I guess every case would have been different, but, but the majority that you were meeting, were they remorseful? Did they regret what they'd done or did they not really connect to the fact that they'd done a bad thing? Well, um, th- that's the thing with probation. You've got a mix of, of all of those things. People who completely out and out deny that they ever, you know, that it was a miscarriage of justice, that they had absolutely nothing to do with it, um, that they shouldn't be in prison. Um, or or what have you, or people who, I mean, my job was to analyse their behaviour. And so uh, in prison, for example, um, you know, if, if people are coming to the end of a term, uh, then, you know, and they wanted parole, then they needed to own up to what they'd done and work with, with their probation and, and other departments in prison. So, so yeah, I mean, it was very, it was, it was hard work. It was sometimes quite um, emotional, um, but it was satisfying. Um, you know, I, I, I was doing an event here in Newcastle um, some time ago and a lady came up and she said, oh, you used to be my, my son's probation officer. And I thought, oh, God, I wonder what she's, she's <laughs> going to say. I didn't quite know what she was going to say. And, um, and she was lovely. And she said, well, I, I just want to tell you that he, he's very grateful for everything you did. And he's actually a millionaire oh, and wow. he lives in New York. And I was like, wow, <laughs> you know, so, it, it, you know, the occasion you get, you know, you, you get people who just, you know, you, you worry about what they'll go on and do next. And, and other people who think that you might have helped in some way, which, which is marvellous. Yeah. Well, we do believe in rehabilitation. I think I, you know, I still do. I think that sometimes people do absolutely impulsive off the scale horrible things and some of them spend the rest of their lives paying for it. Mm. Yeah, there's always a lot of debate and kind of uncomfortable conversation when there's high profile cases, whether they're celebrities or just uh, things that have been in in the media a lot, you know, when they've done a a massive amount of time in prison and then they're coming out, you know, the whole Mm -hmm. idea of, you know, you you wouldn't want a a paedophile or an ex-paedophile, if that's even a thing, living on the same road or living near a school. And then it's like, well, if they've done 30 years in prison, have they not done that? their time you know it's a very very difficult one isn't it it's a big argument I mean and also the argument about whether they're bad or mad you know some yeah. of these people um so you know you get a whole mixture of of human life really and you know a lot of the public aren't aware that they're living quite close to someone who's done some terrible things hmm. um 
you know, so so it's yeah, it's it's a very fine line. But thankfully, they don't come out of prison uh, without being on license of some kind and having somebody's eye on them. Yeah, um, it's not always work, and people are repeat offenders and they go back in. It's like a revolving door for some. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's it's difficult work. It's important work, and I and I enjoy doing it until until that day. Mm. So I'm assuming that uh, a lot of the work that you did and a lot of the people you you worked with and, and met have uh, massively influenced your writing. Absolutely. I mean, I, I never ever would um, think of basing a case on some you know on one that I worked with because that would be completely unethical apart from the fact that you have to sign the Official Secrets Act. Um, but but the experiences I had uh, of working with people is I do definitely use, you know, that there, there are times when it's been quite scary and I've put that kind of fear into my books and I think people know that I've been there in certain situations. So, yeah, so it's that. And plus I, I think if you work with offenders a lot of the time, and if you've got a, a cop in your family and you've got friends who are police officers, then you know, you hear their dialogue. When I, I do, I, when I'm writing, I hear their dialogue and, you know, I hear their voices. So I think that also helps me to get the authenticity there. Yeah. If I want to check facts, then I can just go and talk to my partner about that and say, have I got this right? Have I got it wrong? And um, she will tell me. Yeah. very quickly whether I've got it wrong. So amazing. I mean, quite the quite the team. So she's a, an ex-murder detective then. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So yeah. Uh, you, you, you must, obviously you, you, you speak to her a lot and, and get a lot of um, inside information from her then as well. Well, yes. I mean, procedure-wise, definitely. You know, I, I used to, when I first wrote The Murder War, my, my debut, um, I used to, to not admit to the fact that Kate Daniels was loosely based on my partner, which she was, and everybody knows that now, <laughs> um, you know. Um, but uh, she was younger and taller and all of those things, so I kind of tried to mask her, the look of her, um, but certainly the way she is, the way she was, uh, Mo is my partner's name, the, Mo, the way she was uh, with her team, and how they looked up to her and she had a, a team that were, you know, really a good bunch. Those are the things that I've that I've definitely uh, used in my books. Yeah, interesting. So the, the DCI Kate Daniels series is uh, currently in development. Is it going to be a TV series or a film? A TV series, yeah. Oh, it's uh, in development with Sprout Pictures and Atlantic Nomad. And um, they have found themselves a screenwriter um, and hopefully um, it won't be very long before um, there's a script there that, that will go to broadcasters and, and then we'll go from there. Fantastic. So how many books has there been in the series? Um, the Longest Goodbye is number nine. Wow. So um, I've been with Kate for quite a long time. Actually, I, after six books, I changed publisher. The first six were published by Macmillan. And then I changed publisher and went to Orion and they wanted me to write something new. And I, of course, I, I, there's no way that I want to leave Kate, um, Kate and Hank, her sidekick, behind. And so what happened was 
I said, yeah, fine, I'll come up with this new set of characters and we'll see where we go. And I came up with three synopsis of novels I thought they might like and they liked them all and they said, we will want to publish all of these. So they gave me they gave me a three-book deal, which I was quite surprised. And I started the Stone and Oliver series and I wrote three of, of those before I went back to writing the seventh book, you know, the, the Kate Daniels book. But that three-year gap between book six and book seven what people didn't realise was that I'd left uh, Kate and um, Kate's world on a real cliffhanger um, at the end of book six. And people were absolutely desperate for book seven. So book seven, without a trace, was a, was a big success because people have been waiting for a long, long time. Readers were desperate to know what happened from book six. So it, it kind of worked. And I, I've since... I, I started to alternate the two. So I'm, I do Kate Daniels' book and then I do Stone and Oliver book. And it keeps them fresh, you know. I'm, I, I like doing that. It must be wonderful. Yeah, I guess you, you can't think, you can't imagine anything better as an author to have all your readers chomping at the bit, desperate for the next book. Yeah. It's wonderful. But it was really odd. It was really odd because that when I, when I wrote book six, it literally got to the end and... The last sentence of that book was never in my imagination until I actually reached the, the full stop, the last. And I thought, if I just put this on the end, people are going to be so looking forward to the next one. And of course, at, at that point, I had no idea that um, it would be three years before the next one. <laughs> so uh, without giving too much away, what can people expect from The Longest Goodbye? I think what this is one of, um, I mean, a lot of the books, they're full of emotion and, th- and they're thrilling, obviously. But this one concerns the death of PC Georgina Ayanu, a close personal friend and colleague of Kate's. And we see this in prologue, um, Kate rushing to the scene, putting her career on the line because it's, she has no business being there. And she's just received this message that an officer is down and she ignores protocol. And so right from the off, we're into the action. And she's in conflict with the SIO who's been called out to the scene. And I don't know whether you've read in any of the Kate Daniels books, but this guy lays a hand on her. <laughs> you can kind of imagine what happens next. So she, she, it is, it is Georgina. She was praying that it wasn't Georgina, but it is Georgina. Um, and then we fast forward three years and in the present day, I have a couple of young men, Lee and Jackson Bradshaw, returning to Newcastle after three years abroad. You can kind of like, I'm hinting here at the fact that the three years between the two things happening, it really kicks off then. It's set in, well, Georgina's death happened in Rothbury. You know, I take the book all over the place, but including I had including Whitby and Berwick in the north of of this of Northumberland. As the plot develops, we, we have France and Spain and Greece also feature in the book, so which is where Georgina's last name comes from. She's married to a Greek hmm. man. Whereabouts in Spain do you go in the book? Well, I don't actually go, but but part of it's the, that's that's where the, these lads have been. That they've been in in Spain, and they they travel back to to um, Newcastle. But I have I've been into uh, in in Spain with with Kate before around Casada. Do you know that area? 
Oh, no. Casada, where's, where's that now? An hour from um, Alicante. Okay. And places and just, yeah. So, so yes, we've been there and uh, on the Silver Coast, I think they call it. So, yeah, I'm, I like to uh, get out there and see it for myself, if that's possible. Yes, um, yes, research, very important. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And if it's research in the sun, I'm really happy to get away from the cold northeast because it's a bit snowy here today. Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, it's been lovely to have you with us on the book show. Mari, Hannah, thank you so much for joining us. If listeners want to get a copy of The Longest Goodbye, it's available on our website, tre.radio, in the bookshop section. And it's by Mari Hannah, who we've been chatting with today. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Hello, little Alan Bennett here. If I'm not writing books, then the thing I like most is listening to the book club on Talk Radio Europe. Fancy. Joining us on the line now is Hester Musson. She studied English literature at Bristol University and has a Master's in Drama from the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. While pursuing an acting career, her day jobs included working in TV as a freelance auto cue operator. She's with us on the book show to talk about her debut novel, The Beholders, set in the 19th century when the body of a boy is pulled from the depths of the River Thames, suspected to be the beloved missing child of a widely admired Liberal MP. Welcome to the book show, Hester. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Great to have you with us and congratulations. Must be very exciting having your debut novel out. Yes, thank you very much. It is. I'm I'm very excited and and amazed. (laughs) Have you been working on it a while? Yes, yeah. um, First started on it quite a long time ago and it's been through lots of um, different versions and drafts and yeah, it's very nice to see it finally coming out. Yeah. And when you were working as as an actress, did you think that you wanted to write a, a novel or has it been quite a new thing? Um, it was always something that I, I sort of was always there um, in the back of my mind, but I, I kind of reasoned myself out of it. I thought, well, if I was a writer, I'd be writing. Simple as that. You know, it's not like I had loads of stories that I was desperate to tell. <laughs> um, but I read so much and, you know, my background, I studied um English university there were kind of clues there as to what I perhaps really wanted to do um so when I started writing I was like oh I should have just I should have done this a long time ago (laughs) and how did you know that the kind of book you wanted to write what kind of genre um I didn't uh this one in particular I it was it started out as a completely different story um it was going to be set in the present and there was a there was a subplot a historical subplot that was just going to sort of drop in and chug along with the main story. But I started writing that first and that just completely took over. And I started writing Harriet, the main character, and she wouldn't shut up. So I just, in the end, I had to succumb and realise that I was writing a historical novel. Interesting. So tell us about Harriet. Um, So Harriet is, she's 19 years old and she's a housemaid and she's not happy with her life. She, the most obvious thing for her to do really and what's expected of her is to go home and marry her childhood sweetheart. Um, but she doesn't want to do that. And, but also she doesn't want to spend her life in, um, in service, which was a very brutal life, really. Um, she's looking for a bigger purpose and she thinks she's found it when she goes to work for the Gethins at their country estate 
It's uh, she's bowled over by how grand the house is, and even the other servants in it are all beautiful. Um, and she's completely captivated by her mistress Clara, who has this extraordinary singing voice and fills the house with music. And she also seems to see something in Harriet that no one else does. Um, but Harriet begins to realize that everything isn't quite as it seems. Clara isn't what she seems either. And she begins to doubt that she's made the right decision. And ultimately, she has to make another choice about how far she's willing to go and what she's willing to risk to do what she thinks is the right thing. Mm. And uh, why the 19th century then? Where did that come from, the setting? Um, I've always been fascinated by the Victorian period and a lot of what I read growing up um, and well into adulthood was it was mostly Victorian novels. So I think I've just been steeped in it. It's in my veins. And it really lent itself uh, to this story because it's quite, there are gothic elements to it. And the Victorian period, you know, when you have a young heroine who's um, battling forces, great forces that are against her in this sort of patriarchal society, um, it just, it really made sense. Mm. And uh, what about the the setting as in the the house and, and things, the Finton Hall? Uh, that again, it was. Uh, I didn't. I didn't really realize I was writing anything that you'd call gothic at the time when I was in this strange sort of in between place of not knowing what sort of book I was writing. Uh, but when I looked at it back at it, I was like, oh yes, the, the, all the tropes of gothic are there, and including Finton Hall, which is this, you know, beautiful grand house, but also very creepy. Um, and uh, I had quite a lot of fun going around sort of auditioning country houses on the, in the National Trust in the UK to sort of try and pick one that would be a model for it. Yeah, nice. So tell us about the connection between the the, the death and the, the father, the Liberal MP. Um, well, he is he's kind of a remote figure for much of the book. He doesn't come to the house uh, and she's... She's told by other staff members that he's not going to be pleased that she's there because she was um, hired by her mistress, not not through the usual channels. So she's very scared of him. But when he does turn up, she's kind of in awe of him and he seems lovely and just this, you know, charming, amazing man. Um and yeah, it's difficult to talk about without actually uh, giving too much away. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, t- um, tell us about the title then, The Beholders. Where does that come from? Oh, the beholders is there's a, a a big theme in the book is our our perception of things, our perception of people and situations, um, and how and especially power and how power can present itself to be something it's not. So Harriet is one of the few characters in the book who actually learns what's really going on in the house um, and the truth of it. And I was kind of interested in that point of view of someone who perhaps is aware of of something that is an injustice but has very, very compelling reasons not to talk about it, not to speak out. And what you do in that situation, I thought was was interesting. And the the theme, it, 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 it comes out in the book in lots of other ways. There's a whole idea of servants in these houses obviously saw far more than they were supposed to because they, they saw their employers at their most personal, vulnerable times. And servants themselves have very little privacy. So there's always this sense of being watched and and it's also things like um, the artworks in the house. Some of them seem to have hidden meanings, and um, there's there's references to Milton, the poet, and and his how he felt about going blind, and he was worried he wouldn't 
be able to serve God in his case anymore. So it's sort of um, wove into a theme of service as well, which is all, which is very much part of the book. Mm. And did you have to do quite a bit of research for the book as to the, the time period and, and, and what would what would the stately home or the running of a stately home be like? Yes, lots of research. Um which was fascinating, uh, but yeah, very time consuming. And I felt like because it's because it's a diary, so it's all Harriet's words. I felt like every other word I was having to stop and look up the etymology and see if it was actually used at that time. And if this idiom you could use and it felt like a very slow process sometimes. Yeah. And were you doing the research as you were going along with the writing? Uh, I did about three months before I started writing. Um, but then, yeah, I had to keep keep going because I'd kept They'd keep coming across a situation or, or, you know, she'd want to use something in the house and I wouldn't know what it was that she would be using. So you'd have to go and look it up. Yeah. So now the book is out there. Has it has it made you want to write more? Are you already into book two? Yes, absolutely. Um, nearly there on the first draft for book two, uh, which, yeah, which feels good. <laughs> similar, similar thing, sort of gothic, 19th century, completely different story uh, set mostly in Scotland. Um, but yeah, having fun with that. Okay, perfect. Well, in the meantime, if listeners want to get a copy of your debut novel, it's called The Beholders and it's available on our website, tre.radio. It's by Hester Musson, who we've been chatting with today. Hester, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Joining us on the line now is Jane Forley. She's a psychotherapist turned crime writer. She's fascinated by what makes a person tick, who they are and why they are. She's with us on the book show to talk about her debut psychological thriller, Where the Bruised Pieces Go. It looks into the heart of why we do what we do. Welcome to the book show, Jane. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you for having me. That's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. And congratulations. Your debut novel must be very exciting. Thank you. Yeah, I'm very excited. Nervous, but very excited. Oh, fantastic. Has it been a, a long time coming? Yes, it has. Um, I started writing it way back in, I think, 2016. Um, and I just didn't like the first sort of two or three drafts that I did. And I just had to keep going backwards and forwards until I was finally happy with something that I felt proud to submit to agents and to publication departments. Yeah, fantastic. So when did you stop becoming a, a psychotherapist and start writing? Um, I've always written short stories for friends and family and for myself. I just wanted to improve my writing skills. So it's been something I've been doing all my life. Um, but then I suddenly decided that in 2016 that what I've always wanted to do is write a book. Um, and because I had the background in psychotherapy and the training, I would I had the information at hand. Um, so I decided to stop working with people instead and decided to write for all of my knowledge into a book instead, which makes me happier, actually. Oh, nice. Yeah, it makes sense, I guess, uh, working as a psychotherapist to talk about um, people and write about people and, and the psychological thriller. Did you find it, well, not easy, but I mean, you had lots of lots of people and, and uh, experiences to draw on, I guess. 
I did. I mean, luckily not with serial killers. Um, that would have <laughs> no, been a little thankfully. bit frightening. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but um, yes, um, I did work with a lot of people and therefore I had an indication of um, traumas in people's lives and repeating patterns which can affect how you go on throughout your life in terms of the decisions that you make, the relationships that you have. Um, and I very much wanted to go to the extreme version of that, to look into a background of a serial killer or criminals, um, just to figure out what drove them to do the things that they do, what, what, what happens in their background, in their family dynamics, um, their work environment, their social lives, just to try to understand what makes them tick, essentially, as you said in your introduction, and what makes people do what they do, but also the people that work to listen to these people and to understand them, police departments, psychotherapists, psychologists. Um, I wanted to be as informed as I possibly could be, and, and therefore my my background in psychotherapy and reading generally came into such great use. Yeah. And that old adage of a therapist saying, tell us about your childhood or your relationship with your father, things like that can, can be so true. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> people say it for a reason. So much of our behavior does come from childhood experiences. It absolutely does. Yeah. Um, the, the patterns that you sort of perform and carry out in your life very much are laid down in early childhood. Um, you learn behaviours and therefore you go on to repeat them because for you that is normal. That's what you've been taught. And those patterns can be very hard to break. So whether or not you're talking about someone with a general anxiety disorder or depression uh, OCD, these are learned behaviours that you then go on to repeat and repeat. And it's very difficult to break out of those patterns. Um, and a serial killer is the extreme version of that, which is why I was so interested to pursue it. Yeah. So tell us about the, the setting of the book. It's set in London. Is it in the present day? It is in the present day. And yes, it's set in London. Um, I used to live in the East End, so I'm very familiar with that part of London. That's a very sort of beautiful and also ugly part of London, I guess. But for me, um, there are some very tiny little parts of London that are very beautiful. Um, and I wanted to make something ugly happen in a beautiful spot. I think the best example of that is there's a tiny little park called Postman's Park, which is very close to St Paul's Cathedral. And it houses something called the Watts Memorial, which is acknowledgements of um, heroic actions by the general public, people that have saved someone else from drowning, um, someone that was rescued from the train tracks. And it's such a beautiful little quiet spot. And I just wanted to know what it would feel like one day if you opened that park as a park keeper and suddenly this beautiful memorial was desecrated by a body. And I just wanted to contrast those two extreme actions. Um, and I've also taken that to um, Bunhill Row Cemetery, where William Blake's graveyard is. And just little sort of secret spots like that in London have always stood out to me as being an exceptional part of the city. And therefore, I wanted to make sure that I used them in mm. an interesting way, I hope. Yeah. And on the front cover of the book, uh, the title is written on a pair. What are the significance of uh, pairs in the story? Uh, the pair is a clue that the uh, serial killer lead, leaves at um, one of the murder scenes. And it's up to Sam Sterling, who is obviously the psychologist working with DCI Albert Riley. And they have to start to understand what a pair means. And it is certainly something that leads them down the wrong track many times. 
but it's one of many clues and therefore he just learns that he has to be patient. He has to read the crime scene, which as a criminal profiler is his job. And he has to go from there really and work out exactly what these things mean. But unfortunately, it takes more than one clue to give him an idea of the kind of killer that he's searching for. Mm, Okay. And uh, two of the main characters, you mentioned Sam Sterling there, who's the psychologist. Uh, He also works with a psychotherapist called Emma Malone. What's the difference between a psychologist and a psychotherapist? Well, in this book, in this example, Sam Sterling has a, obviously an extremely stressful job and any therapist, whether they're a psychotherapist, a counsellor or a psychologist, have to, as part of best practice and to keep their own mental health top notch in order to perform for their own clients, have to see therapists or should at least um, to talk out their own problems, their own feelings and what they're finding challenging in their working life and in their social life. Um, I think psychology is much more of sort of a science driven discipline, whereas psychotherapists, which is something I trained in and I'm more interested in, is the emotional state of a person and therefore what drives them, um, how their emotional state can affect their day-to-day life. Um, And certainly those psychotherapeutic patterns, if you like, can take root in childhood. And therefore, it's such an interesting discipline to look back into people's lives um, and find out what emotions do drive them. But um, I just I didn't know how common knowledge it was if people realise that psychologists and psychotherapists can often so closely work together and help each other out. And I thought that was an important thing to include in the book. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, do they work well with DCI Albert Riley? They do. Um, He's sort of a very old school East End gentleman um, and he's been working in the police force for a very long time. Uh, It took him a while to embrace the new technologies of psychotherapy and criminal profiling. But after working with Sam for a while, he realises the importance Um, I think I say in the book that in order to understand people's behaviour and actions in the present, you have to look back into their past and therefore one informs the other. Um, So, yeah, they do get on very well. They're a very tight knit police department. They help each other out. They listen to each other, which I think is something that's very important, produces knowledge and understanding of yourself and therefore can promote you better at work in terms of your relationship with other people and your confidence in your job and going forward. So they're a very tight-knit unit, almost like a family, and they do support each other. Mm, Good. And what are they like as as people? And and does that get in the way of their jobs at all? Um, I think Albert Riley, um, he's so experienced that he's extremely focused. He's always willing to offer his advice and his experience to the other members of his team. He's a very calm and patient man. Um, Sam can be a little bit distracted, but he's starting to learn that he has to focus. But in order to be able to focus, he will need support from Emma as the psychotherapist. He realises that certain parts of his own childhood and background are are getting in the way of how he's performing his job. And Emma helps him to calm down, to process his thoughts, to look at his own confidence in terms of going forward with his job and to allow him to believe in himself. Sometimes Sam can be prone to self-doubt and I think Emma supports him in that along with Albert Riley. Um, That The only way essentially for Sam to succeed in this job is to believe in himself and I think as he gets deeper into the case and he starts to trust his own skills, um, that support comes from Emma and also some DCI Riley and they can't do it without each other. 
Mm. I love the title, Where the Bruised Pieces Go. Can you tell us a bit more about that without giving too much away? I can. Um, I'm certainly terrified of spoiling the ending for readers. But <laughs> yes, that line comes from uh, a Shakespeare play, Julius Caesar. And I was reading it one day and it just struck me that that's such a, a term that can be applied to therapy. People are bruised, they're hurt. And yet they carry on anyway because they are intrepid and brave and strong. And I think it's always very important to to look at the strength that people have. I think people, even if they come from terrible backgrounds have gone through extreme measures to produce themselves as people despite what they may have gone through in the background it's something that's very important to highlight and I think particularly Sam in this case who comes from a very difficult background um, is still open-minded and strong enough to pursue what he thinks is right to search for justice um, but also to accept his own limitations and those of other people and that title just appealed to me it seemed to to sum up that people are bruised but they carry on. Mm, yeah, I like it. So now the, the book is out, now it's finished. What's next for you? Have you already started writing book two? I have started writing book two. I'm a couple of chapters in, um, but I've still got a lot of research to do. So I'm, I wanted to get the first couple of chapters down because the idea is fresh in my head. So I've certainly done a few rough drafts and a couple of chapters that I'm happy with. But um, the, I found, particularly writing the first book, that as soon as I have an idea, there is research that needs to be done to back up claims to make sure that I'm not talking rubbish, essentially. So, <laughs> yes, I'm in the, uh, the research stage and the ideas are forming. So it's quite exciting, actually, to have one out in the world and the other one sort of ticking away inside my head. Yeah, fantastic. Well, in the meantime, if people want to get a copy of the first book, it's called Where the Bruised Pieces Go, and it's by Jane Forley, who we've been chatting with today. The book is available on our website, tre.radio. Jane, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was so lovely to talk to you. Joining us on the line now is Kaba Barras, who, after several years of active service in the armed forces, suffered with PTSD and depression, and on advice from a counsellor, took to putting words onto paper. He's with us on the book show to talk about his debut novel, The Myrtle Tree, set in the Turkish mountains. It's a 21st century espionage that clashes with biblical tales. Welcome to the book show, Kaba. Afternoon, Hannah. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. So tell us then about your writing journey. So it's been fairly recent, has it? Um, yes, 2010, I would say it started after a, a bit of divorce. And as you said there, that my counsellor suggested I write things down. I started making notes on various things that interested me. And the plot of the book came along. So I made more copious notes and uh, from there, really. And did you know the, the kind of book that you wanted to write then and the, and the setting? Oh, no, I had no idea at all. It did, it did just develop from literally nothing. I was uh, down on my luck and feeling pretty miserable and living in a little caravan on the beach. I had no internet or anything, so uh, no electricity. So in the evenings, I, sorry, in the day, I would just... Um, Mail myself news uh, clips from Google feeds and what have you, and then read them at night in the van. And I came across a virus from like a computer magazine. And the virus just fascinated me. It involved Microsoft, it involved Siemens, it involved Israel, Iran. I thought it was a big geopolitical espionage story. So I just started writing 
more notes to help me understand the virus. And then I started to put it into a chronological order with copious note-taking. And before I knew it, I kind of had a bit of a story going. And it evolved from there. The seed was sown, really. And uh, that's where I took it from there. I needed a a couple of characters to work around it. Mm. So what's the Turkish connection? Purely that it was conveniently located on the other side of Syria and easy access from the surrounding countries, Iran, Iraq, and so on. Uh, and the fact that we as Europeans often use Turkey as a, as a great holiday destination fitted in innocently with the narrative. They would innocently pick a neutral country where they could have a nice, the characters could have a real good break and a bit of downtime. Mm. And what about the biblical story side of things? Yeah, well, that came out from the cold of the virus, inbuilt into the cold, apparently, allegedly. Is, is allusions to um, Israel, the Jews, sold very cleverly, um, missed or attacked various components within computers. Um, and anything that was, there was different, different codes that would allude that if it was slightly, if there was a Jewish reference there, it would leave that computer alone. So if the codes, obviously as people read the book, then the code will become evident. But um, within the code were um, cryptic clues towards possibly the manufacturer or the engineers of the virus. And um, within the code was the word Hadass, which is Hebrew for myrtle. The myrtle tree is, again, allegedly perhaps uh, the gar- in the Garden of Eden was the tree of paradise or the tree of knowledge. Um, so that's the, the connection there, yeah. Mm. And did you know much about computer viruses and things? Did you have to do quite a lot of research for this? Being the age I am, then no, I didn't know an awful lot. I was quite savvy. I've grown up with it, as most people of my age. But it just fascinated me that we can now use warfare, modern warfare, in this vein. So, again, just by researching the virus, there's plenty of information about the virus on, on the internet and, and you know, the, the, the website, World Wide Web in general. But yeah, I just Googled what I could and just found news feeds and anything that linked to it just to understand it better. Um, so, yeah, it did help my knowledge of how a virus can work. Um, and then, obviously, the protagonists um, are slightly awkward with modern technology. Obviously, it falls upon them and gets them into trouble. So they um, unwittingly become the targets involved mm. in the virus, yeah. So before we, we talk about the, the characters, this this virus then actually happened. It's all based on, on real experiences. When was this? At about 2010. Uh, apparently it had been going from around about 2005. Um, and the, the virus is, is called Stutnex. People can look it up, and as I did, just look it up and uh, Google it. And Stuxnet was the name given to it by Microsoft. And, and the virus has the ability to damage machinery, computer hardware. Um, it can open sluice valves when the sluice valve should be shut. It can switch panels off or computer panels. It can shut down electronics and so on. So at, at the, you know, the stroke of the button, really pushing a button. So did yeah. it do quite a lot of damage at the time? It was and it still was through, through the, the last decade. It's caused an awful lot of damage for the Iranian government, yeah. Yeah, so the, 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 the virus there was, is to stop Iranians processing uranium and enriching uranium. So the book 
story that the virus hinges around stopping the Iranians from obtaining positive nuclear energy for defense purposes. Mm. There's a lot of politics in it, geopolitics, and people who have read up on, on this will be familiar with it. It involved what Washington and Whitehall and so on. Yeah. So, did you have to be careful with with what you were saying when you're talking about things that are that are still going on? Uh, it's public knowledge. It's in the public domain. So, there's there's nothing that that would be untoward uh, to my knowledge. Uh, all I've done is just pick up the the, the backstory, if you like, and then uh, embellished it with fictional story and fictional characters around that. Mm. that, that trying to solve the puzzle and work out why they're being targeted and taken uh, stage or whatever, yeah, yeah. So tell us about the main characters in the book. Uh, yeah, so it needed a protagonist to be sort of, I guess, my my kind of guy, uh, my age group and so on. So there's a little bit of me in there, and obviously it's a mixed bag of boiling pot of other things as well. Um, he is the typical male, alpha male, uh, archaic type um, character. Um, he's pretty much out on a limb. Um, it's a little bit like the film's taken, if you like. So his, his partner uh, has been abducted. So he um, he's on a, a mission now to get her back uh, and slowly realises that um, he has to work extra hard. He's finished in the services. He's, he's retiring. He just wants a quiet life. He just wants to go back up the north of England and settle down. But plans don't go that way for him, unfortunately. And he's, a, he's, a, he's an old seafarer. He's a, you know, a, a, a ex-forces guy. He's been in the forces. He's been around the, the circuit a couple of times. So he's, um, he's a bit of a character. And uh, it doesn't take any fools and doesn't take any nonsense. And uh, what about the, uh, his fiance? Is that Esther? Yeah, Esther, yes. So Esther is unwittingly the target and fate literally puts her in the firing line, as it were, figuratively speaking. But yeah, So she doesn't know that uh, her background, she doesn't understand why she has been targeted in, in the way that she has. And um, again, this links back, there are tales from the past. Uh, it links back to the Iranian revolution in 79, uh, where her family and lots of families, especially Jewish families at the time, were um, busted or you know like forced to leave Iran, move elsewhere. So she was one of the orphans, if you like, from that that time. Um, but she's a, a clever lady. She's been educated, privately educated. She enjoys a successful career um, in the in the nuclear engineering industry um, until she goes on holiday. And then it all goes wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And then things go downhill for her thereafter. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So do you think you might write a a sequel to this or is it definitely going to be a standalone? Well, I I guess that's an awkward question for me to answer because I guess you have to read the end of the book. Okay. um, (laughs) Yeah, so I'd rather not answer that. Uh, <laughs> fair enough, neither, fair enough. Either confirm or deny. <laughs> <laughs> so what's next for you then? Are you going to write something completely different? Yeah, I've got other things in the pipeline. Um, I have things on the clipboard, on the computer clipboard. Um, I've published a few of the books under my own name. Uh, obviously, Caber is a pseudonym. So, um, uh, yeah, so I've got other stuff that's out there in the in 
in publication. And I'm working on one now, which is um, is just it's about dementia, so it's a bit of a social observation that one. Um, but yeah, there's other sort of thriller stuff and action stuff on the burner as well, which I want to get on with this summer and next. So yeah, hopefully we can get a few more books out there. I love I love writing now. I just you know, I just got the buzz for it. And yeah. It was always an ambition for a long time to, to get this one published. You know, I started working on it in 2010. So, and if it wasn't for my partner, I'd probably still be messing about <laughs> and um, not, not getting it out there. I, I do have a few offers, a few publishing deals, but the first one fell through. And the second offer I had, they wanted too much of the copyright. So then I decided to self-publish and to see how far I could go with it. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if people want to get a copy of The Myrtle Tree, it's out now. It's available on our website, tre.radio, and it's by Kaber Barris, who we've been chatting with today. Thanks so much for joining us. Now, bye, Hannah. Thank you. The Book Programme, presented by Hannah Murray. The TRE Book Show is sponsored by audible.co.uk. Download one title each month, plus unlimited listening to thousands of Audible originals, podcasts, and audiobooks. Just click on the Audible banner at www.tre.radio. You've been listening to a TRE production. If you've enjoyed this program, there'll be another episode waiting for you next week, right here on this platform, where you can also access our extensive back catalogue of shows and interviews. For more information on our live programming, social media channels and apps, and how to contact Talk Radio Europe, please visit tre.radio.